Welcome to the Bill Cartwright Show with our special guest, basketball enthusiast, Bill Riley. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor, actually. Hey, let's do this quickly because I want everybody to get to know you very, very quickly. Let's talk about where you grew up, and I want you to talk a little bit about your mom and dad. Oh, sure. I grew up in Long Island, uh, Nassau County, suburb of New York. My dad commuted to Manhattan for his pretty much his entire entire adult life. Uh, my mom was um, a homemaker, but um, since obviously we're going to talk a little basketball, one of the things you should know, is she's the one that taught me basketball. She actually played uh, in a, on a semi-pro women's team in the nineteen early 1930s. Wow. She was in her early 20s. Um, do, you, do you remember the name of that team? Well, it was it was the it, it, it was an industrial league. She was she was on the Metropolitan Life Insurance team, and she had a you know she had a job. She was high school educated. She had a clerk. You know, I mean, in those days, um, clerical job. There were millions of clerical jobs because we didn't have computers doing all this this uh, wasted work. So pushing paper around for a life insurance company was a major, major activity. So she had a job there, but she got free time to go. Uh, you know, the team went and barnstormed up and down the East Coast. Um, one of her, uh, uh, you know, we all talk about who we, uh, you know, our proudest moments on the court. She, she played against uh, Babe Dietrichson, Back in back in the day, and uh, remembered that for entire life. Now, of course, when I when I came along, and I only knew her as a as a wonderful mom who was uh, uh, obese, way way overweight, and long past her any kind of uh, any kind of uh, being in shape. But uh, we do have pictures of her when she was in her twenties, and she was quite a hot number, and. Uh, and uh, had a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fun with the game. You know, that was a that was a very positive time in her life. So I don't know if I don't think I don't think one generation is enough time to have a genetic imprint, but but certainly the cultural imprint was very strong for me. And um, and then then when I was uh, I think fourteen, and between my freshman and sophomore year in high school, I grew six inches. I don't know if you had that experience. I mean, I I I know what growing pains felt like. You know, I mean, basically, you'd wake up in the middle of the night and your 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 feet would hurt. Um, but that was uh, so. Suddenly, I became attractive. I was kind of bouncing around. I, at that point, I didn't have a focus on on uh, you know, I had normal young man's interest in athletics, but I didn't have a focus anywhere. And suddenly, I was six at. 14 I was 64 I think I ended up being 67 and and uh you know played some serious basketball for my high school team Can you talk about that so you were when you were in high school you were a sports kid were you uh what were you what were you thinking back then uh, you know as near as, as near as I can remember, mostly thinking about girls and and not much else. Uh, I was a good student. I was, you know, that was a that was a requirement from from my folks. 
you know, report card time was uh, was you know you didn't want to be there if you had a you had B's and C's on your report card. So I had good report cards. I, you know, I was I was uh, a good student, a little bit rebellious at times, um, but uh, we got to uh, you know when. When when I finally got to uh, junior varsity basketball at, at as a sophomore, I mean I I felt like I was more at home than anywhere else, and I I very quickly started to you know I basically concentrated on that from that point forward. You know, in the springtime you'd run track just to keep in shape. In the fall you'd start out with the cross country teams for the same reason. It was still painful those first two weeks of up and down the court when the basketball team came together and had to get in basketball shape and put some spring back in your legs. It was, I'll never, you know, I'll never forget that pain. You know, what was the name of your high school? It's called Syosset high school. I'm, um, I'm, I'm one of those guys who, uh, who's, was very disappointed by some of the trends today. I played in, in high school. I was, Syosset was named after a local Indian tribe the town itself. So I played for the Syosset Braves. When I went to college, I went to Dartmouth and played for the Dartmouth Indians. Uh, neither of those teams have a mascot any longer. And I find that ridiculous and very disappointing. Let's talk about that. So when you left high school, you ended up going to Dartmouth. How did you end up, how and why did you go to Dartmouth? Well, uh, the, the short, the real reason is I was, you know, I, I was interested in the Ivy League because my grades were such that, you know, I was being pointed in that direction by my, by my teachers and a little bit by my parents. My parents didn't go to college, so they, they really didn't have uh, have, uh, they weren't much help about, you know, figuring out the, the rules of the road and the landscape. But my teachers were much more help, and they pointed me to. Ivy League colleges. I was very strong in the sciences, and and so I had an interest in engineering. Um, Dartmouth had a very unique; still has a, one of the most unique and and I think uh, productive engineering uh, curriculums in the country. And uh, you know that that got my attention. But the real story is, since I was playing basketball, I had an alum, a local alum, who. Uh, pushed me along and, and and sponsored me on a on a trip to the campus. I flew up to Hanover, which was in that in those days would, would have been a five hour drive from Long Island, but I some somebody blew for a you know some kind of DC three plane ticket for me. And I went up and I showed up uh, uh in those days you could work out with the team a little bit over the weekend. Uh uh, in those days, there were Saturday classes. I went to some classes on Saturday and was, you know, getting tours of the campus and meeting people and had a very good impression. But then Sunday, when I was supposed to fly home, uh, there's a blizzard. It's northern New Hampshire. It happens all the time. And uh, so I got snowed in for three days. The guy who was who was a year who was a freshman basketball player and who'd been shepherded me around shepherded me around campus the guy by the name of Bob Page um 
uh, ended up with me for until Wednesday, I think it was. I, I ended up sleeping on the couch in his dorm room and uh, going to classes with him. And basically, for a seventh time, you know, at the, actually at the time I was only 16 years old. That was early in my, fairly early in my senior year. And, uh, you know, I was just sold. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, but Dwight Eisenhower said when he first saw the Dartmouth campus, he said, this is the way I've always thought a college should look. The place is drop dead beautiful, always has been, you know, it's 250 years it's got a 250-year existence and a long tradition. And all these things resonated with me. And so, you know, I was accepted, and that's where I ended up. By the way, Bob Page uh, lives uh, about uh, 10 blocks from USF and is, a, and is a season ticket holder still at USF. He's one of my oldest and dearest friends, and, and uh, uh, we tell that story together quite often. So talk about your first year at Dartmouth. Talk about uh, some of the things you learned and talk about some of the things that you really liked and some of the things that maybe you didn't like. Well, I was, I was, uh, in, 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 as an engineering student, you're really thrown into, uh, uh, you don't do any, any engineering at all until the second year. Your first year, even though you get a, all sorts of advanced placement, they throw you into these really nasty math and, and physics classes and things like that. It was, it was, you know, the workload for me was at least twice and maybe more what I'd experienced in high school. Because in high school, you know, I mean, I didn't have to kill myself to get mostly A's, B's and A's, you know. Um but uh, at Dartmouth, it turned out to be quite a challenge. The, in those days, every, everybody was uh, graded on a curve, which meant every year, you know, we had three, we had 800 uh, men show up each freshman, you know, for freshman year, each each year, 800 new men. And you knew that uh, 10 to 15 of them were going to be asked to leave at the end of the year uh, because they didn't, they couldn't cut it. And so you didn't want to be in that group for sure. Um, so there's, there's, there was competition in the grade side. And I, I was fortunate in that I had an aptitude for, for the sciences and math. And I had, I probably had it easier. A lot of people dropped out. When I say a lot of people, you know, the, the engineering program attracted between two and three many times as pe many people to show up at Dartmouth as, as a number that stuck with it. You know, more than half of the uh, guys that I met in the in that first year and all the in all the ancillary classes ended up departing for um, what we used to call gut majors. You know, economics and um, geography and you know, kind of fun things like that. English English majors, history majors. Well, I still make fun of them all. <laughs> Did you have any professors who you really, uh, who really kind of guided you along the way, or a mentor mentored you along the way? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there, there were a number of them that you know. I, I won't. I, I, I can't really explain this. It seemed to me that I was often getting. <clears throat> 
special friends type treatment, not, not in grading or anything like that, but in terms of uh, after class and, and, it, and, you know, and later on at social interactions, when, when you're, when you're an upperclassman, you, you come into the, into contact with the professors on, often on a, some, some kind of minor social activity, uh, whether it's at a fraternity house or, or some club or some, some school function. And um, I was always kind of surprised at the level of interest that, that, you know, guys who seemed a lot older than I was and who I respected a great deal seemed to take in me. I, 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 you know, I just, I, I, I still look back on it in, with some wonder. I don't know. Um, they apparently saw something in me that, that they liked. And, and I, I, I'm not sure I know what it is even today. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just, but I am certainly thankful for it because it, if I, I believe it helped me a great deal to be comfortable and to, and to enjoy, uh, you know, the cold Northeast. You know, when I was at USF, I really learned about the world. And I learned that I was really only bounded by my thoughts. What did you really learn at Dartmouth? Well, I learned to a large extent what you what you come away with is a confidence that that if you don't know the answer to something, you know how to find it out. And uh, that is <laughs> these days turning out to be somewhat of a unique skill, uh, which I find very troubling. Um, you know, we were these are days. You know, remember there was no. There was no internet. There was no Googling anything. You know, if you wanted, if if you had a, if you had an assignment, you had to go to the library and work your way through the stacks um, to to find relevant things that you, you know, you had to that you could read. You couldn't you couldn't read like War and Peace to you know to to come up with uh, tomorrow's assignment. You had to you had to be very judicious in what you chose to read, and there's a whole process there. At, that you know, I you know as an engineer, I've always been inquisitive. You know how do things work? What and I and I and, and I look at society the same way. You know how does how does society work? What's what's what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And all these things I can I can I see at at least a dotted line back to my time in college when when uh, when the search for truth, when the search for understanding was front and center of your entire life. So. Well, talk about, you're about to leave Dartmouth. Talk about, what are you thinking? First job, do you know what you want to do? This was after Dartmouth, I'm sorry. You're you're about to leave. You're about to leave school. So what are you thinking? I was I I ended up with a fairly easy decision, Bill. Uh, I I interviewed. Uh, you know, I, I graduated my engineering degree. Uh, it was a good year to be a college graduate. Uh, the, the recruiters were all over campus. Uh, I ended up with I don't know four or five uh, decent job offers from major corporations uh, around the country. Um, but my uh, one of my close friends who graduated the year before 
uh, he was actually president of my fraternity, had uh, graduated from Dartmouth and gone down to Harvard Business School. And he said, Riles, uh, you ought to go to business school. I mean, that it's just as simple as that. Uh, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> when I think back about it, it was impossible. I didn't, you know, I was, I was married. I, I, I had my first child, at, at, you know, three quarters of the way through my senior year in college. I was living in a, in a old army Quonset hut that was the marriage students housing, you know, about three miles outside of campus. I'm driving, I'm driving my pride and joy 1948 DeSoto convertible bouncing around all over New England in it. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, remember the car was already, it was 25 years old when I bought it for 50 bucks. I still own it, by the way. <laughs> awesome. But uh, anyway, it was impossible. I had no money. Uh, my dad, my dad, uh, you know, I mean, he, he paid for the, the bulk of my college, you know, I worked and, and took out some loans in college, but basically my dad paid for the bulk of it. And, uh, but he, you know, I didn't, I, he wasn't, I never, I never even asked him to pay for graduate school. That wasn't in the cards. That wasn't part of the contract, you know, the, the unspoken contract we had. He was very proud that I, that I got to Dartmouth. Got, to, I was the first in my family to go to a four-year college. And he was very proud of that. And uh, but you know, I mean, it it would have been a huge, uh, hugely difficult for him to to um, to pay for another two years. I had a younger brother who was who was uh, you know also uh, using tuition money at that time. Anyway, um, I I did get accepted to Harvard, and the and the reason I went was was just. It was my first business decision, Bill. My, my, uh, all of the jobs that I that I looked at uh, as an engineer started at they were they were all bunched between eight thousand eighty five hundred dollars a year, just that straightforward. That year, Harvard Business School graduates were making eleven five, coming right fresh out of school, and they and they that number had gone up. $1,000 each of the previous three years. It basically was on a, a, an unsustainable curve, but, you know, it was heading in the right direction. I said, you know, if I'm, if I'm lucky, it'll hang in there for another two years and I'll end up coming out of Harvard making thirteen five. And there's no way in the world if I start with a company at 8500 that in two years I'm going to be making that much money. So can I afford to make the investment to get to that point, that the end of the story is, I managed to do it. the The folks at Harvard were pretty were pretty good. They they loaned me some money in the first year. They said, um, "Riley, you're you're uh, you're you you run out of your bar. You're running out of uh, borrowing capacity." And we we tell you right today before you start that we're not going to lend you enough money to do the second year. There are some a very small number of second year fellowships available. So if you bust a gut and get one of those, you can come back for the second year. Otherwise you go, you have to work somewhere and come back when you've got some dough. Well, I, I, I got one of those fellowships. You know, I did, I, I put my nose to the grindstone and, and got better grades than I ever got at Dartmouth. And, uh, 
and uh, you know it was required. And I got through, and I came out with you know with a what today is a silly small uh, student loan, but in those days, of course, it was a it was a pretty good chunk of the first year's salary, and uh, that was the that was the standard, and paid it off finally. But you know, but not without not without the usual. Not quite as much pain as these kids seem to have today, but uh, the usual amount of, of uh, difficulty. So that was my first business decision. It worked. I graduated. And sure enough, the, the starting offer was thirteen five, and uh, here I am. You know, so so, so talk about your first job. Well, I I, I scored a very one of the plum jobs uh, in part. Uh, in part because of um, of my my uh, academic record at, at Harvard, but also a large part of because of my overall background. I I joined a uh, Citibank's brand new venture capital firm. It was actually a subsidiary, Citicorp Venture Capital, and they had been started. They had started up by just collecting some bankers from from uh, the some of the corporate platforms, people that knew a little bit more about the uh, uh, the national markets and the, and the and the financial markets than your average uh, college graduate. And a lot of these guys had business school degrees, but they didn't know engineering. And of course, all the early money going into venture capital was Silicon Valley and and up on Route 128 in Boston it was all computers and and technical stuff, and the history majors were lost. They, I mean, they're they, I still they're still great friends, but they were lost. They were absolutely lost. And uh, you know, so I I I was I got that job. I I did it for four four years working in Manhattan. I uh, got got the family developed. I ended up. Uh, Having another child at well, we were still at Harvard, and uh, my third daughter, who was the youngest, who just uh, helped us through this little computer uh, bug, <laughs> uh, came along shortly after I started work in Manhattan. I did that for four four years, possibly maybe four and a half, and I was uh, the. the, the, the I didn't. I didn't understand why, but I was bored. I think now back on it, I'd understand a lot more about it. But I was probably the only person in the in these United States who found venture capital boring. And the reason I found it boring, and I wanted to move on, was that you basically analyzed other people's brain power and their dreams. And you came to a decision, you had to sell the decision internally to get some money for these guys. But then you then you were hands off and on to the next analytical task. And it, as it, when I finally got into roles where I was a doer, not a, uh, an analyst, I was much, much happier. And, and Citibank took very good, you know, they 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 liked me. Uh, I was doing I was doing a good job for him. I think I still uh, fifty some odd years later. I think I still hold the all time return on investment record for Citicorp Venture Capital. It was a small investment, uh, and that's why it's the record. But in terms of our return on investment, 
uh, a fifteen thousand dollar investment in in only a year and a half became a million and a half bucks, and 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 uh, that's you know that's that's the kind of stuff that now Apple Computer is you know has managed they managed to do in the early days. They can't do it anymore, but that was the kind of thing that happened there. Anyway, Citibank gave me a gave me a portfolio of uh, and a lot of independence. They, they sent me to St. Louis, Missouri, where they bought a company to to uh, expand their national footprint and consumer consumer business of any kind that they could that they were allowed to do. And so I was flying around the country um, buying consumer finance companies for three years for them. I was. 27 years old, 27, 28. Uh, I, I was, I had carte blanche to, you know, I mean, I had the trust of the people back in New York. I negotiated those deals like I was the owner of Citibank. Uh, when I when I got a negotiation all settled, I got a deal in the on on paper and and a contract written or summary of terms, I guess first. Um, I'd take it back to New York and pre present it to the president of the entire bank. You know, I, I was the only 27-year-old he probably ever saw in a day's in a day's work, and it was heavy stuff. You know, and I, I was successful. It worked well. Um, and then the then the government regulators put me out of business. Though that's a long story. I won't get into it. But I'm um, any any time uh, anybody wants to talk to me about government regulation, I'm. I'm ready and raring because they it, it doesn't work very well, and I and I have some real practical examples anyway. But I went from there. I came to California uh, once again. The, remember, I told you about the people that took an interest in me. Same thing happened. You know, I basically had two job offers in California when I let it be known that I was ready to leave St. Louis. Both in San, both in San Francisco. One in banking and one in the Clorox Corporation across the uh, across over in Oakland, and both were uh, active management jobs. Um, I stuck with the banking banking one because uh, I I at this point learned quite a bit about consumer lending, particularly. One of the things we did at that time at Crocker was we introduced the first in the, in the nation uh, equity line of credit, and I'm uh, very proud of the fact that. Crocker at the time was uh, the fifth largest bank in California, which meant that we had roughly eight or ten percent of the of the total number of branches, uh, statewide branches of all the major banks. And we ran an ad in the, in all the local papers that that in 1982 or three, I guess it was that proclaimed Crocker Bank makes more home equity loan, loan has more home equity lines outstanding than all the other banks in California combined. So I've always been competitive. <laughs> and, and what do I remember from that time? I remember a big, I remember a, a buzzer beater from three point land with, with half a second left. That's what I remember. That was, that was my, my claim to fame there. Every bank in the country now has equity lines of credit. I wish I got a 25 cent um, royalty on every one of them, but unfortunately the world doesn't work that way. And it was a great idea. We pushed like hell to get it out. It worked. And uh, now everybody is very happy with it. You know, so I did my, 
I did my thing for man, you know, small, one small step for mankind. That's all. Very narrow little place. But So talk about that. So that's Crocker Bank you were on. It was a, the, the management team that, that I became part of at Crocker, uh, and this is not a widely known fact, was actually uh, uh, brought in by the board after the Federal Reserve Bank in Washington basically threatened them with closing the bank if they did not do a 100% turnover in their in the management that was here in the in in the uh, would have been in the early 70s. Uh, the bank was was in uh, for many many reasons was just in terrible shape. It was it was not well managed. It had, it still had some family roots with the Crocker family that weren't helping. Um, although I, I you know I, I don't know much about that, so I, I you know I shouldn't I, I don't I don't intend to say anything more. Just that they were not helping. Anyway. Uh, we put together once again. It was it was being part of a team, you know. I was on a team with a lot of people I didn't know. Um, that was, you know, I think. I think any experience you have being part of a team, and all of all the things that push and shove at it, are you know stick with you for a long time. So you know, I most of the most of the other members of this team, I. Dad were uh, 10 years older than I was. So I was kind of the young pup. I, was, I had Even then, I had a beard, so I was not your ordinary-looking banker. Uh, a lot of, I got a lot of skepticism early on. But as things started to work and we started to crank out the numbers, the, you know, the bottom-line numbers that, that basically allowed the bank to survive another eight years, uh, you know, I was... Uh, I was at least tolerated, but I had I had good working relationships with a lot of the guys. And for disparate, you know, I'm still I'm 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 going to have lunch uh, this coming week with uh, uh, a fellow who uh, was ten years older than I am and who who ran the um, the international bank at Crocker uh, up to its up to its final demise. Uh, last Friday night, I went to the symphony uh, with with uh, one of my old bosses and his wife. Uh, who are back in San Francisco now after 15-year hiatus, and uh, they were our symphony partners back in the in the 70s and early 80s, and now they're back. We're back a lot older now, but still at the same old thing. Still doing our six times a year to, at the San Francisco Symphony, having fun. Um, the um, and the, but the more important thing for me, I, I have to get this in, Bill. I don't mean to just ramble on forever. Uh, what I what I did when I got to Crocker was now I had to build a new team because I was I was in at a level where I had very little uh, competent help, and so I, based pretty much for the first year, I just recruited like a mad person. It wasn't easy. We were we were we were a you know we didn't have the reputation of Citibank or the Bank of America. We had a story. We had a turnaround story, which was. Which was at least of minor interest to the to the people I was uh, I was trying to recruit, and over the next uh, twelve months, I recruited twenty five professionals. Um, mostly, uh, the, my focus was on 
sales and marketing and merchandising experience. Uh, relatively few of them came from the banking industry because as our as our public headline said, Chuck Crocker's changing banking. We're trying to instill a sales culture in a 360 uh, branch network that had never had a focus on sales in, in its history. And, uh, you know, I needed people that understood selling and marketing and things like that more than I needed. What I told them was, look, banking is simple. I can teach you what you need to know about banking. Your skill that we need here, and it's going to be valued, is sales and marketing, because that's our job. That's what we're trying to do is to change it. So anyway, we had a good time. Wonderful crew. I'm still in contact uh, with many, many of them all over. You know, uh, we've, we've you build some wonderful friendships in, a, in an experience such as that. You know, we lived through it together. The bank disappeared. You know, none of us were happy about that. Um, we had, uh, I won't go into the details on that. I have my own opinion. It's probably not 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 uh not uh very interesting to people watching this podcast but but uh, you know it'll you know i had i had a lot of satisfaction with the job that we'd done let me just put it this way and so it reinforced the things that i learned you know going back to high school and college it continued to reinforce what i'd been doing then for at that point 25 or 30 years and um you know, had an impact. You know, of course, all of that stuff has an impact. Not even, not only then, but even on who I am that, as of this morning. You know, it's uh, all of that stuff builds. So you're about to leave Crocker. So what's your mindset? What are you thinking? What's what's next for you? What I was thinking was, you know, I'm I'm, I'm trying to be a banker. I'm pushing water uphill, you know. Uh, the the, uh, the the gen I had, I, I, I we had uh, we went to the symphony with Friday night. He was my boss for a couple of years, and so he had to write annual performance appraisals. He wrote my all-time favorite performance appraisal, and he started it with the following sentence: "Bill does not suffer fools lightly." That was true. Always has been. I speak my mind. I let the chips fall where they may. Uh, sometimes it, it has not served me well. And the bottom line is, overall, I really don't care. I'd rather I'd rather be one hundred percent forthright with people. And so, if I think they're an idiot, I don't hold back. You know, I said, "Look, don't be an idiot. Here's where you're wrong." People don't like to hear that, according to my wife. Um, I'm sorry. It's just the way, you know, don't listen. People rarely listen anyway. I don't know why I keep going through this, but but it's just important to me and I and I'm I'm still I'm still a, a garrulous old gr grumpy old man, you know. I just uh, I, have, I have my opinion on the world, what's right and what's wrong with it. And I'm happy to talk about it. Happy to, you know, I changed my mind with some regularity. Not just some regularity. Let's just leave it at that. Um, but basically, I've been on a pretty consistent track now for you know since 
since I became emerged emergingly mature, you know, when I was one of the ones, 16, 17 years old. Um, and I'm not unhappy with it. You know, I've got wonderful, wonderful friends all over, the, actually all over the world. I've got, you know, we've traveled a lot internationally in the last 25 years. We've made friends in every country we've gone to. Um, still, still corresponding and, and, and visiting many of them whenever we get the chance. So, what I'm saying is that where did you go to from from Crocker? What did that lead you to? Well, I wasn't, you know. By the bottom line is, you know, I was basically terminated. I was the the bank was heading down the down the shoots. Okay, and I was not, and I was not, I was not popular with the senior management who who was a big part of the problem. And be, I was not popular because I told them on more than one occasion that they were a big part of the problem. So yeah. I was an easy guy to jettison, very easy guy to jettison. So, I, you know, I was only 39 years old at the time. And now it seems like a young pup. That's and um, I wasn't very happy about it, you know. So what was I going to do? Well, the thing that's always kept me together is I'm a project guy and that, and that engineering is like that. When I came to San Francisco, one of the wonderful things that the bank did was they helped me buy a house here on Telegraph Hill that was condemned by the city. It was an absolute disaster. It was uh, originally built in the 1850s as a rooming house. It was falling apart in every way imaginable. And I basically scrambled all my pennies and got a 10% down payment. And the bank accepted every policy violation that it, that it, uh, that it triggered, which were, there's probably a world record, the Guinness Book of Work Records there also. But I bought the house and I started working on it. Uh, I started before, I started while I was at Crocker. I worked nights and weekends on the place. Um, and, uh, you know, when I when I found myself unemployed, I put my energies into it full time. I assembled a crew and I became a general contractor for a couple of years. Um, there was, uh, I don't care who you are, very, very relaxed, low-key mentally. However, if you're in a high-pressure corporate environment, you've experienced stress. I mean, I had stress from the time I joined Citibank until the time I left Crocker. That was, you know, you know, I didn't, I didn't think about it a lot. I didn't worry about it. But this, you know, my, I, my, I had eczema. My skin was in terrible shape. Uh, I had a period where I, where I had. Uh, strange body odors coming from my body even you know right after a shower what the hell does that smell that's me what's going on I, you know i mean it's never properly nobody you know i went to doctors nobody knew what was going on but i'm i'm convinced anyway as a non-doctor it was all stress related it was all stress and so after two years uh as a as a uh basically a contractor doing, you know, doing a lot of the work myself and 
and I hired four or five young guys to, and I basically knew a lot about what I wanted and how to do this stuff from, from other parts of my history. And, um, you know, taught them, taught them how to do finished carpentry work. We, you know, we, we put subs for plumbing and electrical at that time. Um, and, uh, we, f we finished out the first, the first floor of the building and ended up with three gorgeous apartments, which I rented and which took all the financial pressure off the building, uh, basically paid the mortgage and the taxes from the, from the rental income. And now I just had to figure out, okay, now I'm, and getting it to be 40. And what are we going to do next? My wife uh, also had been at the bank. I met her at Crocker. And um, she she left the bank shortly after I did. She was just frustrated with it. I, you know, being an old fashioned banker, I said, hang around. There's going to be a parachute of some sort for you. You know, stick it out for another six months or she wouldn't do it. She just quit. Took the took the uh, easy way out. Anyway, we were we were forty. We were both forty. Uh, I was done with the projects temporarily. At a breasting point, you know, financially stable. Not we we did we we put together our total resources at the time was five grand, five thousand dollars. Uh, the mortgage, as I said, I still had the mortgage, but the mortgage was being covered. I had no credit card debt, so that was good. And um, we put all our camping gear in a uh, in a big duffel bag and and uh, did a five month camping trip to Europe. Uh, and our our we had no fixed agenda. We just said we're going to go and stay as long as the five grand allows us to. So we lived on about thirty five dollars a day. And stayed there for five or six months. I uh, had a wonderful time. Opened our eyes to all sorts of things. Looking back at where we'd been for the, you know, the first, what what you'd normally call the first half of your career. And um, decided uh, our number one objective would be to come back, go to work for a limited period of time. And retire and travel. That was that was our future. So we came back. We both had great difficulty finding a job uh, because uh, you, when you showed up for an interview, people thought you were from another planet. If you if you at forty years old taken a gap year, and at that time this is nineteen eighty six, it was unheard of. You know, we just looked at it as holy crap. You know, we're the poor slobs that have started work the Monday after the last exam, and that never had time to have our parents send us or the money to have our parents send us to Europe for fun, you know. So we were just taking advantage of uh, of a gap. Well, anyway, we finally both got uh, good jobs. Diane ended up uh, with a with a very solid marketing job at Charles Schwab. I ended up uh, back on Wall Street for a couple of years, um, and after that. Uh, <laughs> my timing, my timing was impeccable. My first day on the job was called Black Thursday. It was the, the day the stock market dropped 700 points and, and Wall Street just thought it was disappearing from the face of the earth. So the original dream was uh, we had a we had a dream to start a private equity firm, another uh, 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 
a guy who was had been my original boss at Citicorp Venture Capital. Uh, so he was my he was my link to that uh, to that position. And you know, we we worked at it for two years, but the capital markets just were not in any shape to do that. And we didn't have we didn't have the staying power to, to last any longer than that. So um we went we basically went we I came back from New York and um and started doing consulting for banks with my specialty of consumer lending. And that turned out, you know, I did it for two or three years. That was very, it was very lucrative. It turned out I was worth a lot of money to people. Um, I, I still, you know, now of course it's uh, chicken feed, but in, in those days uh, I was making serious money and banking most of it. So uh, I, the downside though was, you know, for one particular, one assignment I had for almost 18 months, I left San Francisco on a 6 a.m. wheels up flight out of uh, SFO every Monday morning, flew to Minneapolis where I stayed until Friday night and got home at, in time for a late dinner on Friday nights. It was pretty demanding and wearing. Um, but of course, at the at the at the rate I was being paid, I didn't want to take any time off. <laughs> it was like, okay, I get I could put up with this a little while longer. So I did that, and 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 uh, as I say, Diane was working uh, at Schwab. We had we we were living in the city. I was spending uh, my weekends once again working on the house, trying to work on our space. The second the second floor of this building is our owners, our what I call our owner's unit. And uh, when I talk about a renovation, uh, uh, let me speak about the house for a minute. It's a, it's a, the house is on the National Register of Historic Places. I put it, I, I put it there in 1978. Uh, it has historic value to San Francisco. And, in, and, and in fact, it, it, it had a, that that event triggered the development of the San Francisco Telegraph Hill Historic District. Is uh, to start this, we talked about. Um, I'm a big lessons guy, and then how and I learned a lot of lessons from playing basketball. Um, just about people tendencies. Um, how to compete, and I'm really curious about yours. What what have you learned from sports? What have you learned from basketball? Well, I think I think I sum sum it up in, in pretty simply. If you're gonna, if basketball is a team sport, you know, there's. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know of any star that that has been strong enough to carry the whole team. You know, maybe they can get by with one season, uh, but they need a lot of help along the way. And I think the most important thing I learned from from playing basketball is the importance of of uh, being able to control your ego. Um. You know, I was as I said at the beginning. I was I'm 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 not a very good basketball player. You know, I'm six seven. I used to build myself in nineteen in the sixties 
I was, I used to build myself as the last of the six, seven centers. You know, when I got to Dartmouth, there were two or three guys already six, eight, you know, I was, I had to hustle like hell to make the team. Um, but anytime you're on a team and this goes through the next 40 years of playing men's basketball, not only at clubs here in San Francisco where people get to know you, but I used to take my, I, whenever, you know, I told you I traveled a great deal. I, long before they had frequent flyer programs, I was flying a hundred thousand miles a year around the country. And I never went anywhere about my little bag with my Converse all stars and my, and my jock and my, and my, and my basketball, you know, my practice stuff, my shorts and my, and my reversible jersey. Um, I, I, I had pickup games all over the country. And I, I was, I really enjoyed that. You know, I enjoyed being out. I enjoyed those games in, in, in one particular way. Um, you're, you're there with, you're playing, you're playing with nine absolute strangers. You know, people I've never, never seen before. And now I'm suddenly I'm on, on a court with, you know, four, four guys on my team and the, and five in opposition. And um, you have, you basically have two or three times up and down the court to, to kind of demonstrate who you are and what you're about. Um, because I wasn't a great, uh, offensive threat. I, I always concentrated very hard on defense. Um, I have good basketball sense. I'm, I'm a, I'm a quick, quick witted guy. Uh, I think that probably helps if you're, if you're going to be, um, and if you're helping out on defense, you know, um, you know, I always saw my major job as at six, seven and at six, seven, I was still, oftentimes the tallest guy on the court in, in men's basketball around the country. Um, my job was to clog the paint. You know, if the, if the guards got beat, my job is to make sure the guy didn't get a layup. And, you know, you make that clear in the first two or three times down the court, you know, just, they don't, they don't have to shoot. You know, if you, if you, if you get a guy to turn around and go back out, pass the ball back out, you've mission accomplished. Um, I have to admit, I always, I also used to like the fact when those guys, they didn't know how how absolutely slow I was, and that I only, could, if I drove at all, it would be only to the right. And so I was always a good shooter, um, and I, and so I could, you know, this was this was the days when the three point basket was just emerging, and most most times, I if I was playing in Cincinnati or or. Wheeling, West Virginia, and Houston, or some odd place, you know. And it's six, six, seven guys shows up. When he goes out beyond the three point line, everybody leaves him all alone. Well, I drill the first one. Now they have to play me. They didn't know I had only one move. So now my one move got me on the way to the best. Next thing you know, I've, I've got, I've, I've scored two buckets. Now, now I have much more presence on the court, and and I still, but I still came back and hustled and played defense every time, and I think that those are the things. I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit here, Bill. I apologize, but um, you really need to have your ego in check. I think to do that, that was the point. I'll come back to it. 
Um, if you have five medium teammates and no ego, I'd much rather play on that team than, than to than to be trying to keep a superstar happy at the at the center of things. Um, the other thing I have to mention is discipline. Um, you know, basketball, like I, I, I'm sure other sports, basically all team sports and probably most sports teach you the importance of personal discipline. You know, uh, what do they say? It's um, the important thing is not what you do when people are watching, it's what you do when people are not watching. And, uh, you know, I still get up every morning, put the, you grind the beans, get the coffee started, and I go in and spend 40 minutes, which I'm not happy about. It's not fun. But I spent 40 minutes uh, on my back doing stretching and, and some trunk exercises and and then some embarrassingly embarrassingly light weights these days just to keep any kind of tone in my in my deteriorating ancient muscles, you know. But I do it every day, and uh, before anybody else gets up, uh, you know. And, and that's that's something that has stuck with me now for 50 years. I need one piece of advice from you for my USF young kids. What's the best advice you had that has helped sustain you over the years? If you could find one thing that has sustained you. Now, I was really blessed and lucky because I had an extraordinarily positive father so i knew when i came home hey you're you're fine everything's good i just want you to come home i don't want you worried about anything so everything was positive was in a positive light that's what i got from him so what did you what do you say to kids one thing that will sustain them in their career and in their life? I, I, the, it's pretty straightforward. One thing is be the best you can be. doesn't matter how good that is compared to other people. You be the best you can be, and you'll be going home and sleeping comfortably at nights and be happy with yourself. Um, don't set up, don't set un, unrealistic standards. Set, set realistic standards for who you are and what you're going to accomplish. You know, we talked about discipline. Uh, you know, could I have been more disciplined during this 50-year period? Of course, I could. I could have. I could have spent an extra 10 minutes a day. I could have spent an extra half an hour a day. I could have found the time if I really wanted to. So there, you know, everything has limits to it. But just be the best you can be. My dad, my dad, I don't, I didn't have that, that kind of a dad, uh, Bill, my, you know, I love my dad and I know he loved me. Um, we had a, we had more of a, I would call it a professional arrangement. We weren't, we weren't lovey dovey kind of people, either one of us. Um, you know, we, we, we both spoke our minds and, uh, but, but I get my feedback and my, much of my satisfaction today from 50 years of friendships 
not only basketball players, but the, the people I work with, family. Uh, I have a very strong, a very large and very strong family. Um, extended, I should say extended family. Um, you know, there's, we just had a family reunion last year. 90, 90 of us uh, came together to celebrate oh. our shared heritage. And, uh, you know, these are the things, these are the things that I, that I hold dear. And as I look backwards have been absolutely critical to who I am today. And the most, I think the most important, you know, and, and just to put that in perspective, I am, I'll say it once again, I am very, very happy with who I am today. And if, if any kid can look at themselves five and 10 and 15 years out of school and say, you know, I'm happy with who I am today. That's a win. That's a win. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being on. We have uh, one thing we got to do is get you over to Don's game. <laughs> you know, I'm at every Don's game. <laughs> And and my wife, my wife is too. We were we were at Sunday's game, uh, a critical, really nice win against Minnesota. No, I bleed for the Dons. It's my it's my adopted team. I've, as you you know, the good news is the Dons and Dartmouth both share the same green and white colors. Yes, they do. <laughs> and uh, so I have I can I can actually wear my some of my Dartmouth gear. And, and and pass for a Don, Don's fan from a distance, but uh, no, I love the team. Uh, we we've been, I, I bleed with them whenever they lose. You know, it kills me when they when they fall apart at some point in the game and fall behind. Um, it's uh, you know, and I think it's it goes beyond the, it, but it goes beyond just the team too one of the things that we both enjoy you know usf uh has a fairly unique community in san francisco and uh we we love being at at, at the at the games and being able to talk with other people with an interest in bad they're quite knowledgeable about basketball so we have you know high level basketball conversations which i enjoy greatly and uh Diane tries to keep up with, but she's, you know, she's, she has enough fun uh, doing that. And uh, they're just, but they're just the nicest people you ever want to meet. They've been, you know, I'm a foreigner, you know, I'm, I'm from the East coast. I'm, I'm from another team. I've never felt anything but welcome. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, we've become friends with a lot of the people, uh, Father Paul, the president of the university, is among my people I count as a friend now. We we talk basketball, but we talk other things too when we have a few quiet minutes together, and 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 we 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 love that time. Um, we're having <laughs> we're having dinner tonight actually with the athletic director and his wife. Uh, we've been we've been we've been thankful that he showed up in the, at at the hilltop. And just trying to do a small part to help make him feel at home here in San Francisco. So uh, yeah, well, know, tell, we, tell tell Larry Williams he owes me dinner. Oh, I'll uh, 
I hope he's not expecting me to pay for dinner tonight. I, but, uh, <laughs> Just make sure he's got it. I'm sure I have his credit card ready to go. <laughs> well, Bill, I, I, I want to thank you. This is, this is, this has actually been a, a wonderful honor. Uh, one of my Dartmouth teammates is still buried in the uh, cold weather in Chicago. I'm going to, uh, when this, when this gets on the line, I'm going to, to uh, push it towards him and uh, and see what he has to say. He's he's a big he he keeps me interested in Dartmouth basketball, which is uh, uh, which has been you know another thing that now that I've got some spare time, I'm able to. It's a little far away, but I've 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 traveled uh, I've traveled to go see the team. Uh, disrupted a little bit by COVID, but I I try to get back there back east once a year to watch a couple of games. And uh, it was, I guess, three years ago, just before COVID hit, when both Dartmouth and USF were, were, were in different, different brackets, but they both played in a tournament in uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland, which was a, and it, to me, it was like, you know, the gods have spoken. I have to go to this, I have to go to this tournament. So, you know, I, I took a week off and and uh, for my retirement activities, I admit. But I flew to I flew to Belfast and I had a wonderful time uh, uh, watching. I think I watched there were eight teams. I think I must have watched a dozen basketball games in four days. It was really really a, a, a Jim Rats heaven. Yeah. yeah, that was fun. But anyway, but Bill, thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to spending some more time with you. Thank you. We'll see you. We'll see you up at the Hilltop Club. No problem.